Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eves joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 158. I hope everybody's having a great week out there. We're coming up on Labor Day weekend, the unofficial end of summer. Uh, We're getting geared up over here at the Drum Shuffle, uh, doing lots of interviews. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up, so thanks for tuning in. I can't Thank you enough for that. Uh, We have a fantastic episode for you this week. I am going to be joined by amazing drummer and educator, Tina Raymond, right after this message from our sponsor, Lost Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Lost Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Lost Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Lost Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Lost Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Lost Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Lost Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at lostcabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Lost Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Lost Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we have a great episode today. We're going to be joined by uh, just a fantastic jazz drummer and educator, Tina Raymond, uh, here in just a moment. Uh, I did not know Tina before this interview, so I learned a lot in this, uh, but Tina is just doing some fantastic work out at Cal State Northridge, uh, directing that program. And she has just a banging new jazz record coming out on October 8th called Devonations. Uh, Just a fantastic record that I hope everybody will pick up. Um, We talked for about an hour and we covered just a wide range of stuff here. So I know you're going to get a lot out of this episode So please help me welcome to the Drum Shuffle podcast, Tina Raymond. Hey, good afternoon, Tina. How are you today? I'm good. How about you? I can't complain at all. Hey, thanks so much for taking some time out of your schedule to come on the Drum Shuffle podcast. We really appreciate it. Of course, it's a pleasure. Well, we're we're glad to have you. So um, how are things? I I guess you're in California today. How are things uh, out on the West Coast? It's good. It's sunny. It's a little bit warm. Um, as we're, you know, heading into August, this is kind of the worst of it, but I think that's the case everywhere. So it's in, in, good. Indeed. Um, you know, I, at the time we're recording this, I think Phoenix hasn't had a day with a low temperature under 90 degrees for about three weeks now. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of crazy yeah, for, for sure. Yep. So uh, Tina, let's, l- let's start at the very beginning. Um, where is your original home and how did you get into drumming? Do you come from a musical family? Great question. Um, I do not come from a musical family. My parents, um, dad was a, a labor lawyer, mom, 
um, was a physical therapist and then worked in kind of um, medical admin. My sister um, played the flute. We grew up in a metro Detroit suburb called Farmington Hills, went to public school there. Um, and they, they have the option to start an instrument um, when you're in fifth grade. And my sister had played the flute. She's two years older. She started on that. And by the time I was ready to pick an instrument, I had just gotten braces. Um, and she was like, you should absolutely not play a wind instrument. I think you'd have a really good time playing the drum. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. Um, and started it and just kind of fell in love with it immediately. Um, so that's how that started. That's awesome. So, so really it's a, a you're a product of the public school, uh, you know, band system, essentially. That's awesome. Yep. 100%. That's fantastic. You know, I mean, I, th- I think, I think people come from either one of two schools. It's either, you know, I saw the the Beatles or whatever band of, of their generation, right, on TV, and I decided I wanted to be a drummer, or it, it was more of a formal education thing. And I guess that makes sense, given, you know, some of the things that you do now. Um, but were you, were you always drawn to jazz, or were you, you know, I, I guess, you know, going through that educational system, you're learning the instrument and you're playing, you know, the, the basketball pep band or maybe even marching. Uh, I, I don't think that's really a thing in Detroit, but, you know, marching band, things like that. Were you always drawn to jazz or, or did you come from a, a more of a popular music rock background? Um, definitely always drawn to jazz. I, um, my first teacher, we started with rudimental snare drum stuff and very old school Wilcoxon, Pratt, um, the Nard book. We started with that and I, I got, I just fell in love with the rudimental solos and the language of it and the poetry in the phrasing. Um, and he was a jazz drummer in a community big band, the Farmington Community Big Band, and started bringing me to both the, the concert band and jazz band rehearsals as I started to progress. So my first opportunity playing drum set with a band was in this group of um, music teachers from the area and retirees who put together this big band. You know, they'd rehearse once a week and then they'd play dance band concerts for um, retirement homes. My first gig was a Valentine's Day dinner dance at Glen Oaks Country Club for retirees. Um, so, the, yeah, the first playing experience for me was always jazz. And I didn't end up playing in any rock band until I was in college and ended up with a church gig in Cincinnati that paid my rent. Um, you know, <laughs> you too, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I trust me. I get it. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that's a common story. Um, so oh, man, it was so funny. The first time we did like a rock ballad, I, I pulled out brushes and I'm pretty sure everyone just thought I was, an idiot. <laughs> what are you doing? Put those away. <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, and I'm not taking anything away because some of the most, uh, you know, choppy drummers, I mean, some of the guys that just have blazing chops come from mm-hmm. kind of that worship and gospel background, you know? Yeah. Um, but kind of the inside joke is if you know the arrangement to one worship song, you know, the arrangement mm-hmm. to all of the worship songs, right? I mean, totally. it's totally. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you've, you've got, uh, definitely kind of the standard arrangement on those, but well, you mentioned Cincinnati and, you know, I, I'll focus on that for just a little bit because it's so close to me geographically. Yeah. You know, I'm in North Central Kentucky. So Cincinnati's like, you know, 45 minutes up the road from me. Um, mm-hmm. I know you studied there. Did you kind of get involved? I know there's a great jazz scene in Cincinnati. Were you out gigging in some of those situations while you were in college? Absolutely. Um, I had... Man, I had such an education on the bandstand, playing at places like Dee Felice and Shea Nora and the Blue Whist um, and the Netherland Hotel, playing with um, Mary Ellen Tanner. I would sub for John Von Olin at Dee Felice Cafe with Lee Stoller. Um, played a bit with, you know, my teachers out there, Phil DeGregg, um, Rick Van Mater. Um, played in Pat Kelly's Psychoacoustic Orchestra. That was always really fun. Um, 
Cincinnati has such a great collection of really great players who um, embrace the student community there. It's, that was such a great, I don't know if I had ended up in a bigger city, if I would have had the opportunity to learn standards um, the way that I did in that city playing, you know, like a five hour gig, four sets that are just standards on the weekends regularly um, was such a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and, you know, I think so many of us either, you know, cut our teeth in the bars or, you know, wedding bands or whatever the case may be. But having that opportunity, like you said, the the bandstand education, um, it really gives you a vocabulary to, to build on, you know, as you further your career. Um, so after college, when you finished in Cincinnati, when did you decide to move out to California? Was that just kind of a, I'm going to go where the music is, or was it another educational opportunity? You know, kind of walk me through that. Um, yeah. So let me back up for a second. In Cincinnati, I did a double performance degree in classical percussion and jazz studies because overachiever. Hello. Um, and, um, by the time I was done with my undergrad, was ready to put down the classical degree. I felt like I understood what that path could take, or maybe I just wasn't as interested in that anymore. I don't know. But I was I was being pulled into studying jazz. And um, at my time in Cincinnati, I got to work with a drum teacher, John Von Olin, um, who is Cincinnati legend, played with Dan Kenton, Winnie Herman, um, also is known for teaching uh, Jeff Hamilton. Um, and so I connected with Jeff through John. And uh, by the time I was ready to graduate, um, I knew I wanted to leave Cincinnati. I was ready to, to kind of move somewhere that was a little bit bigger, that had more opportunities and, and more people and um, just more. And so I was looking at New York and L.A. Um, and I was pretty sure I wanted to end up in L.A. and that I wanted to continue to study with Jeff. Um, I think that his sonic palette and what he does, he's the absolute best at. Um, it, he's, he's such an interesting performer in that he plays exactly who he is. All the humor, all the wit, all the, the thinking ahead, like it's all in there. Um, it's just amazing. Um, but anyway, he doesn't teach at a university in Los Angeles. And so... I knew my parents weren't going to necessarily support me moving somewhere unless I was going to school, you know, between a, a, a lawyer and a medical professional, basically like school is very important and school is very important in, in my upbringing. Um, so I, I reached out to Jeff and I asked, you know, where can I study in Los Angeles and who can I study with and still be able to take lessons with you? Because I'm sure you've experienced this sometimes. Um, if you're trying to take lessons with multiple people and they have conflicting philosophies and viewpoints, it makes the process of, of practicing and figuring out what to work on really difficult because you're trying to please one teacher and you're trying to please another teacher and they're going in opposite directions. Yeah, it's um, real hard. Totally. It was like I experienced that when I was taking like marching percussion lessons with downstrokes and then orchestral snare drum lessons with like draw the sound out of the instrument. I was like, I can't do both. I can't do both. Um, but anyway, Jeff said, the only person you can study with in Los Angeles and still study with me, and the only place you can go is CalArts with Joe LaBarbera. So I went and applied there and, um, went and sat in on some classes to kind of check it out. And CalArts is this artistic utopia about 30 minutes north of downtown LA in the mountains in an area called Valencia, um, which is now very suburban, but when the school was originally built, it was like very rural, just, just the school and like a little cowboy town. But now it's kind of built up, but you know, the, the classrooms there, there's these big picture windows in one of the main jazz rooms that just overlook the mountains and coming from Cincinnati where all of the percussion and all of the jazz practice rooms and rehearsal rooms are in the basement where there are zero windows. It was just like, <laughs> wow, look at all this light. And I sat in on Charlie Hayden's class that was called the spirituality of improvisation and heard him talk about, you know, playing with Ornette and showing up at Ornette's apartment for the first time. And then I sat in on David Reutstein's, um, 
transcription class, which I was like, okay, these kids are going to come in and like talk about all the Charlie Parker they're learning. And this woman came in and she had transcribed Joni Mitchell, All I Want. That was like <laughs> her, it was just like, what is this place? And then I went down to the African drum room and it was just, so vibrant in a way that I hadn't been accustomed to in Cincinnati. Cincinnati is an incredibly um, structured program. I got so much out of it, but then to partner that with this, you know, artistic um, community where it's like, you don't have to sit in a desk. You can sit on the floor. You can bring your dog to class. You want to have a beer in class? Go ahead. It was just such a different vibe that was so um, refreshing after being in such structure. Yeah, for sure. So, so that's, I mean, I guess coming from a structured program, I'm curious, you know, coming from such a structured, you know, program at Cincinnati to going to a little bit more of an eclectic, um, you know, maybe, uh, I'm going to use the wrong term here, but maybe a little bit more, um, you know, liberal or or hippie-fied, you know, kind of learning experience was it hard for you to shift gears and kind of, I guess, engage the other side of your brain or did it just feel like a natural progression, uh, you know, in your playing? Um, I think in terms of a learning environment, it was exactly what I needed. I was feeling really burnt out on learning and I don't know that I could have survived at another structured institution. So in that sense, it felt really natural and really just like art therapy. It was really important. This, the aspect that I wasn't expecting to be challenging was realizing how guarded I was in Cincinnati. Um, you know, being one of very few women in a program and, and, and the way a lot of traditional programs are set up you're in constant competition with the other drummers, right? You're competing for spots in the big band. You're competing for spots in the combo that's going to perform with the guest artist. There's so much competition wrapped up in these programs. That's not really how the music world works or functions. Um, and if, if not addressed, it can be really toxic, right? Like you can, you can start to be, um, uh, not friendly, like with your peers. And what was so beautiful about CalArts was like, they didn't do that kind of auditioning process. They just put you where they thought you were going to really thrive. And so without that kind of competitive environment, you were able to really hear and appreciate everybody's differences and strengths. Um, but there was this one, there was this one moment in an African drumming lesson where the tradition of there is that people can sit in on other people's lessons, right? And I was just coming from Cincinnati and I had my elbows out and I was going to protect what was mine. And, you know, it was my lesson and the teacher was showing me something and this other kid was practicing it. And I was like, do you mind? You know, I got like really kind of angry that he was learning what I was supposed to be learning in my lesson. And it was just so now that I have perspective on it, it was so ridiculous, but I understand it because I was coming from this place of just such, being so guarded um that was really eye-opening to me to adjust to like it's all good everybody's friends here we're all on our own paths we're not in competition we're friends you know that was the adjustment for me yeah well i mean it sounds more i mean i think cal arts is probably a good um you know a, a good moniker because it sounds more like an art school than you know a classical music program or a conservatory type setting for sure. Yeah. So, um, it, you know, it, and I think that's good because, it, you know, you, you use the word guarded a couple of times there. I mean, when I listen to your playing, I hear a very free spirited drummer. Right. So I, I, I'm guessing that's more of the Cal Arts background <laughs> <laughs> than the than the Cincinnati Conservatory background. Am, am I safe in assuming that? Yes and no. I mean, I couldn't play how I play without the classical orchestral lessons. I couldn't play how I play without a lot of the structure that I got there. You know, like you have to have a foundation to build your house on. Um, And I had such great fundamental skills coming out of Cincinnati. I just didn't know how to be an artist with them. Um, And that's what I learned in, in, at CalArts was, okay, now you know the rules, you understand the rules. Now, what do you want to do with them? Yeah, right. 
Well, so I, let me ask you this, um, you know, kind of keeping chronologically here with your career, at what point did you have the conversation with mom and dad of, okay, <laughs> this is what I'm going to do? <laughs> oh, I think they knew forever. I, I had that conversation with my first drum teacher when I was 13. I said, look, this is what I'm going to do, and you better help me get there. He's very sassy and confident. Um, okay, okay. So I, I, I'm one of those weird ones that kind of just knew early on this was the path I wanted to take. Um, and my parents have always been incredibly supportive. Um, everyone in my family, my grandparents, everyone always says you have to do what you love and you'll figure out the rest. Um, so they've been very supportive. And I, um, once I was out here and trying to figure out, okay, I'm doing this thing. How do I make it work? I was, I was pretty scrappy in, in picking up some teaching gigs, um, to make sure that I had a little bit of income and was ready that when I graduated, I had some things on my resume that I wasn't just going to, you know, wait for the phone to ring and hope I get a gig. Um, you know, I was trying to make stuff happen so that I had at least a little bit of base income per month to figure it out. Yeah. I mean, that's the smart play. I mean, you can't just, um, you know, as you said, sit by the phone and, you know, wait for Madonna to call or, you know, whatever ridiculous right. thing you've got cooked up in your brain, you, you do have right. to be scrappy and, and, and go hustle. So um, I, I'm assuming this whole time, you know, after you got to California, you're, you're probably playing in different musical situations, different settings, networking, meeting people, things like that. How, how did you um, find the L.A. jazz scene? Because, you, you know, earlier you said you were trying to decide between New York and L.A. And I would say 96 out of 100 people would say, I'm going to New York. Yeah. Um, I found it to be really friendly and really welcoming um, and, and more approachable. Um, my experience in New York is limited. I, I had been there in 2000 for a gen convention. I was in the Sisters in Jazz group. And so I was there for that convention and went out to some jam sessions and met some people. And people just kind of seemed like they weren't going to necessarily help you figure it out because no one helped them. And so you're on your own, kid. That's what New York felt like to me. In LA, it was like, hey, where are you from? What are you doing? Thinking about moving here? Cool. Great. Nice to meet you. Come to this thing with me. Come do this. It just felt more relaxed. And I think, you know, that's probably a stereotype about um, LA and New York in general is that people in LA are just kind of happier and friendlier. Um, but that was my experience. And, and certainly it's um, colored by my experience of visiting CalArts. Um, but I remember some, someone told me that I needed to go down to Hermosa Beach to Okie Dokie Sushi and get a California roll and sit on the beach. And if that seemed like something I wanted to do, that I should move to LA. And I did that. And I was like, yeah, I could do this. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, they didn't tell you to drive from LA to Anaheim at 5 PM. <laughs> no, they didn't. You're right. That, you know, was, that was another element of it. <laughs> you um, might've changed your mind. <laughs> right. So. Right. No, but the scene, the scene was cool. When I moved out here, um, there was a jam session going on at a place called The Mint run by Kevin Canner and the house band through that time was like Gerald Clayton, Ambrose, um, Joe Sanders. Um, there were all these people that were kind of still hanging around LA for whatever reason. Um, and it was amazing to be able to hear them like once a week and then go sit in. I remember I sat in when, once there with Kamasi Washington and we played Caravan for like 20 minutes, you know, I mean, it was just, it, it, people sleep on the scene here because it's hard to find and there isn't necessarily a centralized location that everything happens. But if you keep visiting the places that people know about stuff comes up, you know, and then there was a whole scene down on Melrose at a place called the foundry, um, that people were playing at all the time. Adam Benjamin, um, Melissa Morgan, um, tons of people. It was just, it was such a great, it was a great time. I think, especially, um, when I moved here, there were a lot of young players. Yeah. Valtero was here at the time. It was great. Yeah. Well, I, and that helps, you know, having, having people that are your peers that are creating the scene and being able to take part in that, I think is, you know, I, I, just amazing. 
um, yeah. for, for any player. Um, you yeah. know, if you're, if you're only hanging around with the folks that are a generation or two ahead of you, it, it gets a little more, um, you know, you're, you're going to have to come take it from me, kid kind of thing. Right. Sure. Yep. Um, you know, so when you've got all these folks that are, uh, you know, your contemporaries creating a scene, it's, it's really easy to get plugged into that. So, yeah. um, okay. So, you know, for those that don't know, you are now, um, at, uh, Cal State Northridge. Um, mm-hmm. how did that come about? Was that just a natural progression or am I skipping over a whole lot of stuff here? Because, um, you know, you're, you're an educator now, certainly. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about, you know, continuing on the, the education path. Sure. Um, so when I graduated from CalArts, I had picked up a couple teaching gigs at different high schools, taught drumline, percussion ensemble, some jazz combos, um, and then eventually started teaching adjunct at um, Occidental College and Musicians Institute, um, and then Los Angeles City College. Um, And after being at City College for, I think, two years, um, a full-time position opened up. I applied. I got it um, and was there full-time for about four years, got tenured, um, and then the position at Cal State Northridge opened up. And I really enjoyed teaching community college. That's a really... um, important part of a lot of the kids' lives or students' lives that end up, you know, in that kind of program. It was a really great community of students that I had there, but um, I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm an ambitious jerk. I don't know. I was like, "There's what's, what's the next thing? You know, where do I go from here? And the position at Cal State Northridge opened up, and how many women do you know that run jazz programs? Well, you, you're the first. See? So, and, and I think there's maybe six or seven in the whole country. Like it's just, it's not something you see very much. And I think it's impossible when you're from um, a marginalized group, a, a, a group that isn't as seen that um, you kind of feel like you're holding the torch sometimes. And so a lot of, a lot of times for me, I'm like, well, why shouldn't I do that? I, you know, someone, someone who looks like me should have a position like that. Um, and so I applied we kind of that in mind um, and accepted the job in January, 2020 to start in the fall. And then the whole world fell apart. And so then we <laughs> did a whole year online. I taught online jazz school to kids I had never met, um, which was very bizarre. Um, so it was both, I think a natural progression, but also there was a lot that kind of went into that process. Yeah. I, well, I mean, you know, I have a daughter who's getting ready to start college and she went mm-hmm. away for high school to a ballet conservatory and amazing. It is, it really is. Um, 2020 was her freshman year of high school, uh, you know, down in North Carolina at this, uh, you know, art school for ballet. Yeah, so yeah, she goes fall semester, spring semester. They're like, okay, kids go home. How do you teach yeah. ballet? virtually online. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, um, it's, it's pretty, you know, those challenges are, and I don't want to turn this into a pandemic conversation, certainly, but, um, you know, how hard that must be, um, you know, coming in, taking over this program and the first card you're dealt is, Oh, and by the way, you can't see any of your students. Right. I mean, I, I can only imagine. It was for sure the hardest year of my life, um, but I'm better for it. I'm tougher for it. And in, in a weird way, it worked to my benefit because I think everybody felt bad for me <laughs> <laughs> and they couldn't, they couldn't compare anything that I was doing to anything that had been there before. Um, so that kind of worked in my favor. You know, sometimes you, you walk into these programs where someone has been there for decades and is just beloved and they retire or they leave. And then the new person that come in, it comes in is constantly compared to who was there before for better or worse. Um, and, and that experience certainly made that impossible for students to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I can, 
you know, I, again, I can only imagine, um, you know, how, how difficult that must have been. Um, but you know, it sounds like you're, you're kind of getting your, your sea legs under you now oh, a, co- a couple years in. Now. Yeah. It, it's a man. I think it's, but, and a lot of teachers in LA are products of the CalArts scene. And there's a few faculty at CSUN that went through CalArts as well. And like, we all kind of get it. And our whole approach to this Cal State program is how, how close can we get to a CalArts vibe with maintaining some structure? And I think it really is kind of the perfect balance of, of structure and freedom. And the students are so happy. We're having such a great time. That's awesome. And, you know, and you know, I am not a product as a drummer. I am not a product of, of higher education. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, my you talked about having a a, a good, you know, vocabulary. My vocabulary was basically Led Zeppelin, the Stones and, you know, Motley Crue or or whatever. Right. So, yeah, I I have a hard time. And, you know, referring back to my daughter, how do you judge a ballet student or a jazz student or are you, you know, I just think that the arts are subjective in every facet, right? Like it's so hard to say, oh, Tina, you know, you did great. You get an A in my class. Mm -hmm. Jamie, you weren't as good as Tina, so you're going to get a B. I I just, you you know, it's it's very difficult because, you know, what in the world would somebody have done with Chick Corea in a jazz program in the 60s, right? Like, totally. or, or, if Frank Zappa showed up, you know, like yeah. how do you grade something like that? Because it's totally, it's otherworldly, right? Right. Yep. So, you, you know, um, so, but I think if you're taking these young artists that maybe haven't quite figured out what their voice is yet mm-hmm. and you're teaching them, Hey, this is what your predecessors did in this line mm-hmm. of work or in this genre. Mm-hmm. Now you take the flag and run. If that's yep. the educational um, content, then I'm totally down with that. But if yep. it, if it's a hey, if you can't play this Art Blakey solo from you know what whatever record, yeah. you, you know I I, I just I, you know why bother? I guess is the question. Yeah, I I 100% agree with you. I think my whole. Um, philosophy with with jazz is like you learn the rules so that you learn how to break them um, and how to break them with integrity um and it is it is really funny teaching jazz musicians in in a you know a state school system where like there's a lot of red tape there's a lot of ge's and they gotta go through these protocol things and inevitably the jazz students are always trying to jump the system <laughs> you know they're trying <laughs> of to course like, and it's like of course you are you're a jazz musician you're creative you're trying to find a creative process within the structure presented because that's what we do. Um, and it just, it makes me laugh every time that happens. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, and, and that's kind of my whole point. It's like the, these are going to be people that are not going to fit into a class syllabus ever. Yeah. Right. So, uh, well that's, that's interesting. And, you know, I, I read and I don't have it right in front of me, so I apologize, but I did read in your bio line that you are the president elect of, um, the, the, uh, correct me here, but the jazz society of Southern California or or what exactly is that? California Alliance for jazz. Okay. Um, Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. This is a program that helps, um, organize the all state jazz band for, um, a convention that's held every year called CASMIC, which I'm probably going to get the acronym wrong. It's like California Association of School Music Educator Convention. I think that's right. If it's not that, it's close. Okay. Um, so it's more, it's more high school based, middle school based. It's a way for me to kind of connect hopefully with future students. Um, they, you know, they do a lot of outreach also for jazz educators and providing um, music educators around the state with resources. A, a phenomenon that we often see in music education is that at, particularly K-12 teachers aren't really equipped to teach jazz. They're, they're great band and orchestra choral stuff, but their jazz stuff is lacking. 
Um, and so having resources available to, we call them tune-ups, to, to go and give these teachers um, a better understanding of how to run a big band, how to teach combo and tunes and jazz harmony. Um, that's kind of the MO of that program. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations on that. That's, um, you know, I, it sounds like it'll be a good scouting system for you, if nothing else, right? You, you'll be able to recruit some students. I hope so. Um, and connect with other educators who can then, you know, recommend the program and, and also just connect with ed- other educators in the Cal State system. There's like so many Cal, Cal State schools up and down the whole state, you know, um, it's just really, it's amazing sometimes how big the California system is. Oh, no, I, I totally get it. You know, it's a big state and, you know, so I, I totally understand, but that's, that's amazing. Okay. So let's, um, you know, I want to be respectful of your time, but let's transition a little bit to some of your professional playing. Now, I know you have a, a new, a new release that's coming out, um, September 22nd. Um, I want you to talk to me a little bit about this. Is is this your first release as a band leader? No, this is my second. Okay, okay. All right. So I, I apologize for not picking up on that. But okay. I did listen to it um, over the weekend. And, you know, I, it's great. First of all, let me just say that. Um, Glad you like it. Oh yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's a great listen. I I want to understand a little bit about the concept behind the album. I th- I think I have a pretty good idea, but I was a little bit shocked at you know the complexity of these compositions. It it seems a, a little progressive to me. Um, you know, okay. be- because like the opening track is almost seven minutes long. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, wow, this is this is going in a direction I didn't expect. So um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, how the album concept came together. Sure. Um, so last summer, coming out of COVID, people are, are getting together and making music again. And um, the two musicians who are on the record, Andrew Renfro and Carl McComas-Reichel, they live within 10 minutes of where I live, which in L.A., your, your best friends and your neighbors. Um, and so we started getting together regularly just to play, um, and have a nice time. And one day when they were over, I was like, let's do something creative and weird. Let's, let's pull tarot cards out of this deck and, and look at the cards and look at what they say and improvise based off of that. Um, and so we did that with a couple different cards and I was like, this is a really fun, whimsical, creative process. I want to write some music with this in mind. Um, I think, too, as, as a drummer trying to put together a record or a concept, um, it's hard to feel like you're actually going to connect with the listener because you're not playing the melody, you're not playing the harmony. Um, so much of what you're actually writing, you don't end up playing. So for me, having a really strong concept behind all that information is how I feel I can, I can actually um, put an intention into the music. Um, and so... I had a few different tarot decks and was just pulling different cards and reading different descriptions and then wrote songs based off of those sort of core words and images that were, were on the cards. Gotcha. Well, and, and, you know, when I was looking at the, the track titles, I was like, this, Mm -hmm. this sounds a lot like a tarot deck, but I'm not, (laughs) but I'm not sure, you know, because that's just not, you know, something that that's in my periphery all the time, but the, right. the album is called um, Divinations, mm-hmm. and again, it's coming out September 22nd. Um, talk to mm-hmm. me a little bit about the recording process. Uh, is It's going to be released, is it Amani Records? Is that yeah. the, the, the yeah. imprint? Okay. Um, talk to me a little bit about the recording process. It, it, most you know jazz trios or jazz quartets... They get very well rehearsed. They go into the studio and they cut everything in a day. Was that kind of your experience as well? Yeah, we did three performances in advance of the recording date and then went in and did the recording in one day. Okay. Okay. Um, Was it recorded, I'm assuming, someplace in L.A. at one of the studios there? Yep, in Glendale at a place called Tritone Studios with um, an engineer, Tally Sherwood. Okay. Um, who I've done, yeah, I've done a couple records with him. My first record wasn't there, but I've I've done a couple records with a Polish pianist, uh, Kuba Stankiewicz there. Um, 
I know I've recorded other projects there, but he's great. And he's, he's just a really cool human being to be around for a whole day, which is what you want in an engineer. Um, so it was a really fun process. Well, and, and sonically, the record sounds really good. Um, you know, my you. my big complaint with a lot of the modern jazz records is they're they're really trying to get this vintage sound, right? Mm-hmm. And and it feels a little contrived to me, or it sounds mm. contrived to me sometimes. This is, you know, it doesn't sound like there was a whole lot of EQ cutting going on. I mean, your drums sound great. Um, I kept making him bump them louder. I was like, everything needs to be louder. It felt more like a rock and roll record to me, especially like the third track is like, this is not, this is not a jazz record. It's kind of rock in this moment. You took Um, the words right out of my mouth. You you know, I mean, look, I understand you, you, if you're a jazz trio, why not go in and try to make it sound like kind of blue or or whatever the case may be. I get that. But if that's not what you're doing, just let it be organic. And this is a very yeah. organic sounding record. And it does sound a lot like a rock record, but in a jazz setting. And I, yeah. you know, I'm a rock guy. So I loved it. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, and I know that you have um, some tour dates around this starting in early October. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what are your hopes? I mean, obviously you're a full-time educator, you know, you're running, you know, a jazz studies program at a state university. Um, you know, so you can't really leave for Europe for six weeks. I get that, but right. You know, are you going to continue releasing albums as a leader? Are you going to continue, you know, playing in, in various situations? You know, I guess what is the long-term goal for Tina Raymond? Yeah. I mean, if I'm not if I'm not out there playing and creating, what do I have to teach my students? That's one side of it. Um, I think it's absolutely necessary that I continue to engage with the professional community so that I can actually teach my students how to do this thing professionally so that they're not just like, oh, well, Tina was an educator, so I guess I'll do that. If they want to play, that I have an understanding of how that works. But also, like, as a creative human, I mean, like, I did not, I did not move to Los Angeles and go to CalArts to then become a full-time educator. That was not my MO. Um, I appreciate the stability. Los Angeles is expensive, right? Um, and I, I took this retirement benefit seminar when I was teaching at City College that basically statistically said that I was going to live until I was 95, which means that I'm going to need to save for, like, 30 years of retirement. So that's also on my mind. Um, but as an artistic human, I get really bummed out if I'm not creating and playing. Um, it's kind of like on a, on a human level, this is so deeply important for my sanity. Um, yeah, I hope I do this for as long as I can do it. You know, when I say retire, I don't mean retire from playing. I mean, retire from teaching. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, it's funny that you bring that up and this is something that I've never disclosed on this podcast, but you know, I've always had a day job. Even though I consider myself a musician, I've always had a day job. And, you know, what I've been doing for the last 20 plus years is running 401k plans, retirement plans. I mean, that's that's what that's what I do for a living. I work for a trust company, Um, you know, so and it's something that needs to be talked about because if you're a full time musician, you don't have a 401k. You don't have a retirement plan. So for you, you're really living in the best of both worlds. You can continue being creative and being a, you know, a a performing musician, but presumably you're part of, you know, the CalPERS, you know, retirement system being a a state employee. Um, And that's a pretty good gig, right? I mean, you put in your time and you get a check for the rest of your life. That's awesome. That's, that's in theory. Yeah. I mean, it's been interesting because I've, I've applied for some, positions where I've been told, you know, they're, they're strictly drum set teaching, not director positions where I've been told, well, your teaching stuff is great, but artistically, you just don't have enough national draw. Um, <laughs> so it's, it can kind of bite you in the butt if you're not out there playing in other facets of your career. Um, but, you know, you only have so much time and attention to give to things. And, and I, I am conscious of stability and longevity and, um, 
having a teaching gig like this, it, it helps me be able to put money into projects like this record. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, for, the for, balancing act. For sure. Well, you know, it, you just don't have enough of a national draw. That's, that's kind of like the educational equivalent of the record label saying, I don't hear the single. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it just permeates the entirety of of the the musician's life of yeah well you know I just don't hear a single don't have enough yeah. national draw but you know th- there's some other things that you've done you know throughout your career that's pretty cool like you know I was just pecking around on your website you know trying to get prepared for our interview and I saw some of the um, you know, the pandemic kind of live streams that you did with different, you know, trios and quartets and your playing is, I don't want to give everybody the wrong idea. Of course, you've got the traditional jazz chops, but that's not really what you're, you're doing. Like one of the live streams I saw, you guys started with a Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young song. And, and it was very, it was a great take on it, but you're, your drumming is sort of unbridled if, if, if I'm allowed to say that, you know, it's, I, I think you do have all of those traditional chops, but you're very creative. So I, you know, kudos to you for that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's, I feel like it's funny when I tell people that I studied with Jeff and I use, I use Jeff Hamilton's symbols. I use fiber skin threes. I use his brushes, his sticks. Um, but I play nothing like him. And it's, but it's like that, that tradition, that rudimental fundamental tradition is so much, it is so much of my playing, but you're right. I use it very differently. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I think it's, it's refreshing. Um, you, you know, and I, you know, I, I'm not one to, to judge any other player. Right. But mm-hmm. s- sometimes the, you know, spang-a-lang, spang-a-lang, you know, swing thing. It's like, oh, well, you know, you do that as good as the last 73 people I heard do that. Right. You, you know what I mean? I agree. I absolutely know what you mean. I, I liken it to having this jazz filter in your brain where the player is thinking, and now I will demonstrate that I understand and can play jazz. And there's an inauthenticity to that, that like once you remove that filter and you're like, this is how I play, this is how music sounds to me. Um, it's a much more authentic expression of improvised music. I agree. And that's what jazz is all about. You know, um, yeah. I, one of the, you know, one of the great jazz cats, um, you know, that, that I've talked to over the years, he was like, just stop the, because I was complaining that, you know, I'm not a great jazz player. It's just not mm-hmm. where I come from. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was, you know, the great, the legendary Peter Erskine. He was like, stop mm-hmm. thinking about it. Yep. He was like, just like, like, just sit down and play. Don't think about, oh, I've got to do jazz now. He's like, just sit down and play, man. Yeah, you know. So you have to, you have to almost not care. And it's not that you haven't put in the time or have reverence for the music, but you just can't care what other people think. Yeah, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, what a lesson to get from Peter Erskine, right? Is just like totally stop thinking about it. Just sit down and do it, man. Um, yep. you know, so, well, again, you know, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, the album is really great. Um, I, again, I, I don't know, but I, presumably this is going to be available everywhere you can find stream download music on September 22nd. Am I correct in saying that? That's correct. Yep. Okay. Now, are you doing physical product are you doing cds vinyl cds yep they um they'll be available on i think it's imani records music.com and the Bandcamp site okay fantastic well you know we always ask that because that's what pays you the most so yeah uh we we always tell our listeners uh, preferably by the coaster format don't don't just yeah don't just stream it beautiful yeah i think you know if nothing else you'll have a really pretty piece of square art (laughs) <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And your website is tinaraymond.com, correct? That's correct. Okay, fantastic. Now, final question. Um, you know, obviously you're doing a lot of teaching at the school. Are you still doing private lessons as well? Private lessons, yep. I'm also doing a lot of um, 
like traveling artist, guest artist, teacher stuff. I'm directing the Louisiana State All-Star Big Band in, oh, I think October or November, um, doing a lot of different festivals as an adjudicator. Um, yeah, doing all that stuff. Fantastic. Well, we're going to send some folks your way. Um, it, you know, right. it's just been an absolute pleasure to have you on today to talk a little bit about your history and the and the upcoming release. And I sincerely mean this, you know, keep us posted over here on everything that's going on in your life. And um, we'll, we'll have you back in a heartbeat. Uh, so anytime you have something you want to share, let me know and we will get you back on the, the pod to talk all about it. Awesome. Thanks, Jamie. I appreciate you. You are very welcome. And I will talk to you very soon. Sounds good. Thanks. All right, guys and girls, that is going to wrap up episode 158 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. Many thanks to Tina Raymond for taking time out of her schedule to come on the show and talk about her new record and her career. Uh, Just can't thank her enough for doing so. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be joined by another great up-and-coming jazzer uh, out of New York by the name of Rentaro Mikami. Uh, Just uh, another fantastic record on the way out, so I know you're not going to want to miss that. So go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen in to the Drum Shuffle podcast. Uh, You're not going to want to miss some of the stuff that we have coming up here over the next few weeks. Uh, The biggest thing you can do to help us out here at the Drum Shuffle podcast is to share a link with a friend. So make sure you do that, and we appreciate your efforts around that. We answer every single email that we get over here at the show. Uh, Podcast at gmail.com is our email address. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And you can always find more information on me over at jamieeds.com. What you're not going to find over there is when my voice is going to get back to normal. Uh, I do apologize for that, but I've been fighting the funk for a couple of weeks now. So uh, any uh, thoughts and prayers, any envelopes of those you have laying around, you can send them my way and I'll be glad to receive them. Uh, But I am on the mend. So hopefully things will sound a little bit better next week as I know you're going to tune in for our interview with Rentaro. So until next time, may your heads stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody.